welcome to our third and final look back episode, which includes some selections from season three, which ran in the fall of 2021. Before we begin, I want to take a moment to thank you for listening and for staying connected, even as we've all had to keep our distance. This episode begins with a clip of CBC's Adrian Harewood in conversation with Youssef Salam about his book, Better, Not Bitter. Youssef was wrongfully convicted of rape and assault as part of the Central Park Five and spent six years and eight months in prison. The process of writing, it's not easy to mine your interior self. It's not easy to to visit traumatic times in your life. I'm wondering what the writing and and kind of having to excavate some of these memories, what was the writing like for you? Oh, I got to tell you, it was tremendously liberating. It was um, a labor of love. And labor, yes, it was laborious. It was something that that you had to go back and do a deep dive into. Um, quite similar, I would say, to telling the, telling our story with regards to when they see us, and also with regards to the Central Park Five documentary by Ken Burns. And the reason why I mention that is because, on the one hand, you want to be able to tell your story, and I tell people this all the time. You know, I'm a motivational speaker. I've been speaking for over 20 years now, but. I've actually been a professional motivational speaker since 2015. And what I've been able to understand about that process is that every single time I get on stage and I tell my story, I heal again. That dynamic of being able to release the pain, the hurt, the trauma, the indelible scars back into the world, back into the universe, gives you the opportunity to regain the collective hug that you need from society and it's a tremendous thing. It's 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 a it's a spirit a spiritual thing, a very sacred thing that happens. You know, um, we very rarely get the opportunity to tell our stories, especially men. Men men very rarely get the opportunity, or I should say, use the opportunity. I shouldn't say get the opportunity. We very rarely use the opportunity to tell our stories, to you know, um, connect ourselves with the greatest thing, which is the the creator, right? Knowing that the value is there and encouraging each and every one of us to move forward and not just move forward in a, in a small way, but use your story to magnify what it is that you're going through, because then you can grow through it. You can literally look at the circumstance and say to yourself, wow, I'm a better person because of this, right? What happens when you are in the, in, in, in hell, makes all the difference. You have to keep on walking. You have to keep on moving forward. But it makes all of the difference for you to be in that space and, you know, tell your story and be vulnerable at the same time, right? There's a huge amount of vulnerability because who wants to tap back into the emotion of having been run over by the spike wheels of justice at 15 years of age? And more importantly, who wants to be able to tap that emotion into the Sankofa moment of realizing that this is part of the black experience, that experience that we've been having 400 plus years now. That's a really, really powerful thing. Today, we're bringing you a conversation between the festival's Neil Wilson and Clayton Thomas Mueller. Clay is a member of the Treaty 6 Cree Nation, located in Northern Manitoba. He's a campaigner for 350.org, a global movement 
that's responding to the climate crisis, he's campaigned on behalf of Indigenous peoples around the world for more than 20 years, and he's the author of a best-selling new book, Life in the City of Dirty Water, a memoir of healing. This is a story that examines and calls out systemic racism, white supremacy, and settler colonialism. Life in the City of Dirty Water ultimately asks us a foundational and hugely important question. What is it actually going to take for us to heal from the violence of colonialism? Here's their conversation. The cover of your memoir is by Christy Belcourt, an award-winning Métis artist, author, and activist. And it's called Our Lives Are in the Land. And it's one of the most beautiful covers I've ever seen because it's not only stunning in its colorful depth, but also speaks of creation in all her majesty and sacredness. From the waters, the lands, and the stars, we behold the universe in all her glory. And of course, the cover speaks uh, powerfully about some of the foundational themes running through your book, your long journey to reconnect with Mother Earth, traditional knowledge, the circle of life, ceremony, dignity instead of pride, Sundance, and the prophecies. So there's just an amazing synergy between the art and the text. Could you comment on that for us? Yeah, well, you know, Christy Belcourt and Isaac Murdoch, um, another artist that that she works very closely with on um, their cultural camps initiative in, uh, in, 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 you know, what, what is now called Southern Ontario. Um, you know, they've been literally painting the movement of climate justice for a number of years now. And I had the opportunity to collaborate with them during Standing Rock um, where they brought a vision, you know, that included both, you know, Christie's paintings of the universe and 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 also fish, yeah. <laughs> fish, fish swimming in rivers. It seems so simple. And Isaac brought his image, um, which which is this this iconic image of uh, Thunderbird Woman, um, and you know that 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 image of this woman with with wings, you know, she's a thunder being. You know, that that spirit has been <clears throat> literally the representation of the climate justice movement for many, um, not just here in North America, what we call Turtle Island, but across Mother Earth um, during this time where we're trying to end the era of big oil. And, uh, you know, we had a protest here in Winnipeg a number of years ago against the Energy East pipeline. And I, I, I set up a, a workshop with my dear friend and mentor, Dave Solnit, the younger brother of journalist Rebecca Solnit. Mm-hmm. He's this incredible artist. Um, and Christy and Isaac came to the art build. You know, we were, we were bringing a totem pole from the West Coast to place in the path of the Energy East pipeline to stop it. And um, they heard about it and they came to the art build. And, you know, we they gave permission to use their art um, you know, for this, 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 this statement that we were making against the government and against big oil. And, uh, we won that campaign, you know, and that totem pole to this day, uh, you know, sits at Dave Crescane's lodge outside of Winnipeg and Saguin first nation. And, uh, since then, you know, they have gone on to collaborate with, 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 with hundreds of protests and, uh, demonstrations and their art, you know, 
has literally, you know, been the, 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 the thing, the, the representation of, of, I don't want to say resistance or protest because that's not what indigenous peoples are doing when we stand in front of people trying to cut our forests down or pollute our rivers or drill for oil in our lands. Um, we're land defenders, we're water protectors, we have responsibilities, you know. Uh, I think in the Western context, you know, people like to say that we have rights, but, you know, to quote a good friend of mine, former chief Yvonne Peter from Alaska, he says, yes, we have rights, obviously, but I like to say instead we've been given responsibilities or original instructions. <laughs> and so, you know, her her vision is, is has crossed all, all uh, boundaries and borders. I mean, you know, the great fashion houses of Italy are using her vision for their prints. Um, and I feel very humbled that she allowed me to use some of her vision um, as part of this story that I'm sharing about being Indigenous and growing up in an inter-city uh, community here in these lands that they call Canada. Let's turn things over to David O'Mara, poet, playwright, curator, and collaborator extraordinaire, who will introduce us to Jordan Abel and his amazing book, Nishka. I found it really interesting. At one point you discussed, um, I think it was Stephen Collis's term for, you know, points of intersection um, uh, in your erasures as a kind of a hinge page. And I couldn't help thinking about that idea in this book too, how, you know, there's a number of uh, pieces in it. Like there's these double exposed photographs or um, uh, when the shape of an illustration dictates what text you're using in empty spaces that project, um, this idea of intersection of a, of a hinge where the, the parts are connected to allow something to, to open up seems central to your exploration of the contradiction and irony. Um, like you, it, it seems a strength of the hybrid form. Do you, do you think that's true? Yeah, that's, um, you know, it's funny. I, I think about that hinge all the time, mm. um, you know, since, uh, since Steve Collis, you know, uh, mentioned it, you know, and it's, it's been a thing that's like been been ling lingering for me. Um, but I, I hadn't actually thought about the double exposed photographs as as having a hinge, but I think that they do, you know, in that like there's there's a there's a connect connecting point between two images, you know, that kind of overlap imperfectly. Um, and and there are other you know there are other hinges in the book too, um, and you know perhaps perhaps you've noticed you know more than you know more than I have, <laughs> <laughs> um, but I again like thinking of like there's a there's like a section um, pretty late in the book uh, that's composed entirely of images, and there's there's a there's a transition point you know in that sequence that very much feels like a hinge to me um mm. and you know i i think that it's it's quite possible that that is a uh, a re recurring mechanic you know that that it, uh, appears throughout uh throughout my previous work as well um i'm even thinking even thinking now you know that moments in engine where like the text becomes inverted you know yeah. 
is also is also you know potentially a kind of hinge uh you know although you know maybe um imagined in a in a slightly different way Today, we're going to spend time with two remarkable writers, Rhonda Douglas and Camilla Gibb. This is your fourth book. It's, this is the fourth book. Yes. Know, it's, oh, it's, my God. Look at you. I, I keep doing that. So I keep tripping myself because the yes. first book was short stories. Right. And then now it's okay. So fourth book, third novel. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Okay, so this novel um, that came out in 2021 is called The Retreat. And the retreat is about Maeve Martin, a dancer who arrives at the High Water Center for the Arts um, to reconnect with her dance career after uh, bearing a child and having some dealing with some sort of family issues. And I have so many questions for you, and I'm so excited. So welcome, Elizabeth. Oh, I'm so excited that you have so many questions. Um, Amy uh, was one of the very first readers of this book. Yes. And um, and I always remember that my my favorite thing that has been said about this was actually what you said when you called it terrifyingly fun, because that was 100% what I wanted to do. I just wanted to write something that was repulsive and fun, but yes. also really scary. I think scarier than maybe other things I've written. So. I just, I just want to say, I'm not going to give anything away, but when <laughs> I finished Atmosphere is something that you're very, uh, you do an excellent job of capturing, but maybe this is the first novel where um, atmosphere is really actually like a character. You know what I mean? Like the location really plays Mm -hmm. a part. So can you talk a little bit about how you sort of pulled that together? Yeah, there's, you know, it's a very limited setting in some ways uh, because we have like an inside that is, that is, uh, I think, quite claustrophobic, um, in terms of um, the the arts retreat is sort of set in a a lodge or a, a small hotel mm-hmm. up in the mountains, and then there's the outdoors, and the outdoors um, also becomes claustrophobic because of the nature of the snowstorm that arrives, because of the avalanche. But of course, the outside is also quite wild, um, and what I really wanted to convey. Um, with that, you know, we, we had a really big snowstorm here in St. John's mm-hmm. in January, 2020. And so I had already written the first draft of uh, the retreat when that happened, but um, it became really fascinating for me to get to live through, get to, um, to, uh, to live through um, a storm that was that big and uh, really took out the infrastructure, which is of course what happens in the retreat. Um, so a lot of the things that I had been thinking about I got to experience in real time. And one of the things I've been thinking so much about was what is the effect on everything else? You know, we sort of have this modern convenience, um, human, very human society way of moving through the world where we uh, really position ourselves at the center. But as soon as you leave um, the infrastructure of a city, you don't even have to go very far. Although Maeve does, Maeve goes, um, you know, quite far up the mountain, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the the climate and um and those sort of weather events and and what is happening outside your little bubble of a building um becomes so important um so you know that was definitely one of the things i was thinking about so there is this big storm mave 
really tries to just power through and keep working and and keep um, trying to meet her own expectations, regardless of the fact that this is going on outside. And so that, um, I guess, that conflict between her desire to um, keep working and keep making art, in this case, um, against... Uh, this very wild exterior that is uh, dangerous uh, and not only is I mean dangerous in lots of ways so the the storm is dangerous it's blinding uh, it's cold um, and then also the animals around her are disoriented so I really wanted to um, create a feeling of danger that was not necessarily human constructed um, right I think you know, in thrillers, we often have the sort of feeling that we're being watched, that um, that something is coming, someone is coming. And in this case, when she's inside, that's very much the case, right? Um, when she's inside, there's there's always this threat of uh, a human who is potentially not what Maeve was expecting or not, right. what, not what they seem. Um, and then as soon as she tries to escape that, the outdoors is uh, so oppressive and is um, another source of conflict, another source of danger for her. Our guest today is Melanie Challenger. She researches and writes on natural and environmental history and the relationship of humans to the living world. Her first nonfiction book, On Extinction, How We Became Estranged from Nature, won the Santa Barbara Library's Green Award for Environmental Writing. She was the recipient of a Darwin Now Award for her research in the Canadian Arctic and the International Fellowship with British Antarctic Survey for her work on the history of whaling. More recently, she's focused on environmental philosophy and bioethics and was a visiting scholar at the Hannah Arendt Center for Politics and the Humanities and a visiting fellow in the philosophy department of Durham University. Today, we'll be talking about her new book, how to be animal, a new history of what it means to be human. Matt Haig says, it is so wise and so well-researched. and makes you realize that so much of where we go wrong as a species, socially, psychologically, environmentally, involves forgetting or trying to escape our nature. For those of us familiar with this book, it will come as no surprise that she is also an award-winning poet and librettist. So How to Be Animal really came out of the initial question, what does it mean for us to be animals and what follows from that? And as I explored that, what I came across through history, across cultures, is the fact that being an animal is fundamental to a lot of what we value in our lives, whether that be our relationships, our emotional sensory perceptual sort of states but also and and the things that we take pleasure in a meal you know the sunlight on our faces the, the views of the ocean these sorts of things the smell of flowers the taste of foods these are all very animal things and yet we there's a lot about being an animal uh, or that flows from being an animal that is very frightening to us that includes our mortality illness disease failure um, you know, and the, and it creates philosophical and moral problems for us as well. So we do things in the world that we, we have the kind of mind that we recognize are 
unpleasant or, or morally and ethically thorny for us. And we, throughout history, our different societies and cultures have found different kinds of ways of easing that, of, of buffering us from that. And so that's really all of the kind of gnarly territory that I go into in the book. And it, it takes us off in lots of different places. But the core central idea is that in some way we all do battle with being an animal and yet being an animal is fundamental to us. Miriam Chauncey was born in Haiti, but grew up in Canada. She first lived in Quebec, but spent the bulk of her years in this country in Western Canada, in Winnipeg, Manitoba. She attended the University of Manitoba, where she received her bachelor's degree in English and philosophy, and then went to Dalhousie University for a master's in English literature. She received her PhD from the University of Iowa in 1994. Miriam, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Adrian. I'm happy to be here. Miriam, I wanted to begin this way because I, I, I'd like to claim you as, as being someone who's part of my tribe, born born in, in 1970 in, in Port-au-Prince in, in Haiti. Your, your family immigrated to Canada in the 1970s. What brought your family to this country? Um, initially, uh, so my parents actually met in France and uh, and had uh, one of my uh, had my sibling in France and uh, wanted to settle back in Haiti. And of course, uh, 1970 was really the middle of a Duvalier dictatorship, uh, and opportunities in Haiti were 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 scarce or complicated to come by. And at the same time, uh, French Canada was uh, advertising for um, francophone instructors. And so my parents were recruited to uh, be teachers in Quebec City. Uh, my father taught French and uh, I think at the high school level, and then my mother uh, taught accounting. And then both of them were then uh, in turn recruited to teach in Winnipeg for in the same subject areas in the French part of Winnipeg, the French what? quarter. What was it like and what did it mean to be a Haitian Canadian growing up in Winnipeg in the 1960s? <laughs> well, um, as far as I know, at the time, there were only two Haitian families uh, and our fathers were best friends, which was great. Uh, there was another Miriam in the other family. So I had a, a sort of almost sister who had the same name. Um, and we shared a lot because because we were uh, very few. Um, you know, it, it's, it's hard to explain because there, of course, is a sense of isolation, uh, not having a Haitian community as there was in Quebec and uh, Quebec City and also in Montreal. And I know uh, there is in Ottawa. Um, and I know that today there is a larger Haitian community in Winnipeg. But in the 70s, there, it was really non-existent. Um, but at the same time, we went back and forth between um, Winnipeg, first Quebec, Winnipeg, and, and Haiti for many years. And so I don't think I felt that absence uh, until I was older. Mm -hmm. and, and so you imagine, as a young person, you imagined yourself as a Haitian. Yeah, I always did because I, I mean, it, it really, for me, was very striking to be born in Haiti at the time, but I was, and I've reflected on this over time uh, because when I was born and my parents were uh, children of the 30s, and so they actually married uh, late for people of their generation, 
Um, and what that meant is that, you know, their siblings had already had children and those children were in their 20s when I was born, but most of them were still in Haiti. So I had a huge extended family. I still had a set of grandparents who were in Haiti, uh, also a great grandmother who was still alive when I was born, uh, who died over 100 when I was about eight years old. Um, so there was a, a, a large family network. And um, I was embraced by it. And as a, as a child, um, there was really a sense of, of being included in everything. And, and because I was so young, receiving so much information from different generations of the family. So I was really embedded in Haitian culture from the very beginning. And I really wasn't aware that I was becoming ca Canadian, if, if, if I can put it that way. Um, partly because you know, I was raised in French and Creole. And then uh, by the time I was mainstreamed into Anglophone schools, I was you know, between the ages of eight and 10. Um, and so there were lots of transitions you know, to live through, but I was anchored in uh, being Haitian and of being Haitian origin and that's never left me. You say you were anchored being Haitian, you were embedded yeah. in, in Haitian, Haitian culture. What was your conception then of Haiti? growing up? What was your kind of understanding of the place? Sure. Um, well, of course, there's, there are certain things that you don't know as a child. And I think one of the things that uh, both sides of my family did, did very well uh, when I was a child and for the children in the family was to leave us, um, you know, blissfully unaware of the politics of a country. And so, you know, certainly people uh, struggled or may have struggled, different parts of the family may have struggled under the Duvalier regime. Um, but both sides of my family avoided politics for the most part in order to survive. And what that meant is that we were unaware that there was a dictatorship and we were shielded from it. Um, and so my understanding of the country and, and of course, uh, Haiti in the 70s is not like Haiti today uh, in the sense that there was a great deal more security uh, in all senses of a word. Uh, there were not the kinds of gangs and kidnappings and the things that we hear about on the news today. There was more food security. Um, you know, you could walk freely in the streets. And, and I remember doing that as a child. So my memories of Haiti is a place of great beauty, uh, a place of great generosity, which are things that still remain, I have to say, uh, and uh, where people really shared everything, you know, the abundance, because, of course, uh, when we were especially coming back to Haiti, uh, my grandmother would put on a great feast, which would last for days. Uh, and so I wasn't aware until I was older, but, but this wasn't an everyday occurrence, <laughs> you know. Uh, so it was a place for me of abundance, of richness, of love, um, and of beauty. That was a taste of Adrian Harewood in conversation with Miriam Chauncey about her acclaimed novel, What Storm, What Thunder. It's our 25th anniversary season and new episodes begin next week, so stay tuned for conversations with Amitav Ghosh, Sarah Moss, Stuart Ross, Kate Hartfield, Alexander McLeod, Katie Kitamura, Jean Van Loon, Helen Humphreys, Nabin Ruthnam, and many more in the months ahead. Music